You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to Season 3 of the Executive Access Podcast. Billy Bean started his baseball career as a player in the Mets organization, but his playing career stalled out after six years and only 148 games with the Mets, Twins, Tigers, and Athletics. He began his front office career immediately after his playing days were over, remaining with Oakland as an advanced scout. 30 years later, Bean is still with the Athletics in his third decade running the club's baseball operations department. I sat down with Bean in his office this spring to discuss his career, the book and subsequent movie that made him a household name, no, I didn't bring up Brad Pitt, and how the game has changed most since he first broke into it. This is a guest I've wanted to have on here since we started this podcast, and I'm thrilled to finally have him on. Enjoy this conversation with Athletics Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations, Billy Bean. Billy, you grew up in San Diego, played three sports in high school. Was baseball always the first love? I, I, th- I think so, but it, you know, it also was, uh, my love was what I was playing at the time, too. I remember at times, you know, what I liked about growing up in that era is it, it wasn't really the age of specialization, so, uh, you know, during basketball season, I loved playing basketball. Uh, actually, for a long time, basketball was, was probably the one I enjoyed playing the most, and I probably was the one I played more during the summer. Uh, but uh, but again, it really my favorite was usually the one that was going on at that time. And even during the summer, great thing about San Diego during the summer, we spent playing other sports. I mean, we played tennis, and uh, we used to sell golf balls. And uh, and to the golfers that would hit them out when I lived in Pacific Beach, and then when I moved up to Ranch Bernardo, we would actually plug golf balls out of the driving range. They give us free golf holes at the golf course. So we got to do a little bit of everything there, which was nice. And uh, but again, for me, it was uh, baseball is the one I think that. Uh, bonded me with my father because you know he was the one who taught me baseball a lot of the other ones I sort of he we played a lot of a catch with a football around too but basketball is when I literally learned myself and uh, taught myself how to play so uh, but baseball is the one that my father and I had the relationship over you were being recruited to Stanford to play football you ended up signing with the Mets out of high school was that a difficult decision well the difficult decision uh, uh, was not going to Stanford uh, mainly because you know, for my parents, my father was a military man, and um, uh, sports was really a, a, an avenue to a, a scholarship. I mean, my parents, you know, we weren't wealthy by any means, or certainly very, as you would expect, a military middle class. And so sports was just an opportunity to get into a great university. And, um, and so the disappointment came, uh, I think, and looking back, if I have one regret in life, it was not going to school, mainly because of the experience of Stanford, especially we sit here in today's world, when you think of the impact Stanford's had on the entire world, uh, so missing that opportunity is something that, uh, again, that's probably the one regret I have. Uh, but uh, it was a tough decision, and in fact, uh, the decision to sign really came about when the Mets actually offered me the opportunity to sign professionally at a high school and still attend Stanford at the same time, which was was kind of a got my cake and eat it too. And so when I signed, I signed under that uh, agreement. What, what ended up happening was a week in 1980, a week before I was getting ready to go to freshman orientation, and I was playing in Little Falls, New York, in the New York Penn League, uh, I got a letter from the Dean of Admissions. And uh, he said, listen, if you're going to go to Stanford as a part-time student, you have to go full-term your freshman year. And at that time, I had told the Mets I would go to two quarters at Stanford and then miss the third quarter. 
But Stanford, like I said, right at the very end, uh, said, you know, you can't do that. You need to go full term all the way through June. You're a freshman. Then you can become a part-time student. And um, at that point, I had told the Mets, and I felt like I needed, I owed it to them to, you know, live up to my end of the agreement. So that's how it turned out. You ended up studying economics at UC San Diego. You did that in your off seasons. I did until then. I was, uh, uh, I was started getting called to the major leagues with the Mets, and you know, September was when the the quarter would start there. So I was unable to. Once I started getting called to the big leagues, I was unable to go back. But yeah, my first couple off seasons went to UC San Diego. Was there economics? Was there a thought in your head of if baseball doesn't work out, a business background's probably not the worst thing, or why? Why economics? I think when I had started, that was the only business degree I believe at that time at UCSD. Econ was the, and it was the same with Stanford. I remember when I was going to go to Stanford, they, uh, I think, you know, listen, back in 1970, business sounded like, oh, I'll do business, but uh, uh, econ I think was the only business degree at the time, and I think that's why I initially. I, who, Who's the, I'm not sure I was particularly interested at that time in economics. I think I was just more interested in a, pursuing a business degree. You wound up playing parts of six seasons with the Mets, Twins, A's, and Tigers. Uh, and a lot of those seasons at bats in the big leagues were kind of few and far between. When you finally decided to stop playing, what, what sort of pushed you towards that? You know, I, I loved playing, but my, my dream was really to do what I'm doing now, to be honest with you. I, in some sense, I saw playing as a, uh, an avenue to doing what I'm doing, which is running a baseball team. So, uh, uh, you know, I, was, I played 10 years professionally, as you said, parts of six in the major leagues. My, my first daughter was due in May. Uh, you know, at the time I was going up and down, each year was sort of, you know, you know, try and make a team, and it just seemed very tenuous. Uh, I was looking to do something that I really uh, anticipated doing the rest of my life, and um, I was in the, I was actually, it was 19, 1990, it was, and I was in the outfield uh, shagging balls. There was a lot of dead time playing that really kind of drove me crazy. There was times I'd sit out in the outfield shagging or getting leads off second, and I was going, there's, that was just, to be totally honest, I'm bored out of my skull. <laughs> so, uh, and, um, and it was in 1990, and Ron Schuler was the advanced scout, and I loved, I loved the evaluation part of the game. I loved watching the game. I loved the, you know, I used to sort of pick Sandy Alderson's brain. Um, when he was the general manager there about, you know, we talked to him about players and things like that, even when I was a player. And so when Ron Schuler, we were in the outfit one day shagging in spring training, it was close to this time of year exactly. And um, uh, he said he was looking for a new advanced scout because he was going to, they're going to have him do some other things. And I kind of looked at him and I said, you know, I'd be interested in doing that. And, and I was like 20, I don't know, 28 or 29 at the time, 28, I think it was, or 27 actually. And, uh, and he goes, you, he said, well, don't you want to play a few more years? And I said, no. I said, I'd really like to do that. It's ultimately something uh, that I'd want to do. And, and, and he goes, well, I'll talk to Tony, Tony LaRusso and Sandy. So the next day, you know, they called me in. They said, are you serious? Are you sure you want to stop playing? And, uh, and I said, yeah. And, I, and I, I took the job. In fact, I remember Walt Weiss. One day I'm stretching the, the day before. And then the next day I'm walking in my uniform to the coaches. There's a, we used to use the other clubhouse for coaches meetings back then and I'm walking I passed Walt right past the stretching group and he looked at me like where are you going and I said I'm done <laughs> and he goes what <laughs> and literally from that day on I never looked back and I it was you know uh, it was the right time it was a, in my mind it was a great decision and I uh, you know I from that point on I was really truly doing what I wanted to do you held that advanced scouting role through 1993 you were promoted to assistant GM uh, your primary responsibility at that point was scouting minor league players you had been a player but not a scout. 
uh, you know, actually scouting. Is there a specific skill set that you think makes for a better scout, or is that something that you spend enough time doing it, you learn it? Listen, I think, well, first and foremost, it sounds obvious, but you got to really like watching baseball games. And I enjoyed watching baseball games, and I liked, again, I liked the evaluation of players. Even when I was a player, you know, as you, know, you pointed out, I mean, I, I played with some great teams, or at least I sat and watched some great teams <laughs> from the bench. You know, the Twins in 87, I was with the 89 A's, I was with the Mets when they first started their run when I first came up. So I was around a lot of great players. And and I got to observe a lot as a as a part-time player. And so when I, well, actually the advantage I had is that going directly from the playing field, in fact, I did that when I first started, almost all major league scouting. That was all I was doing. It was really easy because I knew the players and a lot of the players who were coming up from AAA I had known and played against as well. So I think it gave me an advantage, to be honest with you. Uh, and it was, in fact, it was a very, very easy transition. And, um, uh, and it, again, I loved, it was literally like three and a half years that I did that job where I would do the advanced work prepping for the series before. Uh, and then at the end of the year, I was also, because I'd seen so many players, was responsible for writing up the whole league, the American League. So it was you know, basically a major league scouting job. And again, I had a passion for wanting to put together a team, and part of that is evaluating players. So for me, it was, it was a dream job. I, I remember when I got, I used to pinch myself. I wasn't making a lot of money. I mean, going from a major league salary to a advanced scout, it was, I'm telling you, it was, in fact, I'll be honest with you, the first year I advanced scout, I was an advanced scout in 1990, I, I believe my salary was $30,000, which uh, it wasn't a lot, it, it's not a lot of money now, it wasn't a lot of money then. Right. But I, I couldn't have been happier. I loved what I was doing. Uh, it was, I mean, it was a dream job to be able to go to stadiums and, uh, you, know, you, you know, so I got to know writers, you know, you, and you know the days when you sit in the press room, I don't know if guys even do that anymore. You know, that's why I got to, you know, I remember Peter Gammons, you know, getting to meet, you know, Hall of Famer Peter Gammons uh, and, you know, watching him and then getting to know him and talk, talking to him before a game. And then you'd have the game. And I enjoyed going home and riding up to the hotel and stuff. So, so for me, it was a dream job. And it, it lasted exactly probably the amount of time it should have. And, uh, and then halfway through that season, uh, it was one of the first years we weren't competitive in 93 with the A's. And I remember they sort of said, hey, listen, we're, gonna, we're not going to do the advancing. Why don't you go home for a couple of weeks? We're going to figure out, kind of reevaluate how we you know, do the scouting this year because we obviously weren't going to win it that year, uh, win the division. And it was probably a, maybe a month later after that that uh, Sandy called me and offered me the assistant GM job, which was a huge jump. I mean, to go from you know, being at a major league scout to assistant GM was a very big jump. And I was very young. And, but I was very lucky because I had a lot of support of the people in the organization who'd worked around me those three and a half years. As, you know, they know me as a player in 89 in the three and a half years and, and really supported me. Guys like Carl Keel, Tony La Russa, Dave Duncan, who I'd worked with on the major league staff. You know, uh, Sandy was the general manager. So uh, that was really the biggest jump and the biggest break I think I had when I, when I got to you know, literally go from scouting to, to being right next to the guy who was making the decisions. And, one of the best in the game in Sandy Alderson. In the mid-90s, ownership ordered Sandy to slash payroll, and they started trying to identify undervalued players using a lot of sabermetrics. What was Sandy's biggest influence on you in those early years? Uh, well, I'll tell you a quick story about that, too. In 93, so that was the year, at the very end of the year, so I, I was scanning the first half of the year. I, was, I wasn't officially named until later in the summer, I think. So, so I moved up to Oakland that fall from San Diego, and we had a really bad team. And I remember sitting in the um, uh, suite watching like the last series of the year, 
I think we ended up losing like 97 games that year. Along, we had the worst. I think we had the worst record in baseball. But back then, if you remember, the worst record in baseball didn't automatically get the first pick. It alternated. So we achieved the worst record, but only got the second pick. <laughs> so uh, anyway, another story. But I remember sitting there watching the last series of the year, and we were awful. And and I and we had a terrible minor league system. We had nothing, and we had a high payroll. We literally had the trifecta <laughs> that you don't want: right. high payroll, bad team, no farm system. And uh, you know, we were coming off a really good run. We were, you know, we had uh, tried to extend, you know, a great period in the late '80s and '90s, but it, it, we exhausted it. And I say, and so I remember thinking, I'm going to get fired in six months. This this team, and we're so bad right now that I didn't think I was going to. I thought like, like don't buy a house. It's you know. Uh, and so that's how I sort of, you know, entered uh, into the front office with concerns about how long I was actually going to have this job. But as you talk about Sandy now, listen, as soon, you know, it's funny. Uh, in fact, even, you know, Michael Lewis wrote, wrote in the book, and it's actually true. Uh, you know, of all the years I played the game, I played with some Hall of Fame players and, and, you know, some amazing guys and some amazing talents. But I think the guy that I probably, you know, idolized more than anyone was Sandy. I mean, to me, this was such a unique individual, you know, so bright, and his background was so different than any other, anybody else in baseball, period. I mean, it, it, similar to my father, in a sense, he was a military officer, but unlike my father, and unlike very many other people, he was a, you know, a Dartmouth undergrad, a Harvard Law School graduate. Uh, you know, come to find out later, he, when he went to uh, officer candidate, uh, OCS, I believe it, in uh, Quantico, he was the first Marine, I believe, to finish first in classroom training and field training, which I don't think at that time it ever happened. He never told me that, his father did. So I got to be around this amazingly trans transformational executive, really, when you think about it. A guy who, you know, most of the guys who were running baseball teams were not guys like Sandy. And, uh, but to be around somebody like that on a daily basis was just, I mean, amazing. And I said this even when he, he when I was named the GM in 98 was my first year, and he actually went to the commissioner's office in 99. I remember, you know, it was really a heartbreaking day because I really felt like working next to a guy like Sandy, I could have done it for my entire career and never been bored. There's never a day that I didn't, I, I walked in frustrated that the guy above me, you know, was uh, not, you know, not smarter than I was. He was smarter than I was. And every day, was it was hey we were friends you know I admired what he did he every day was a learning opportunity not just from a business standpoint but from an ethical from a moral standpoint just he he covered everything and uh, and so that's one of the things in fact I tell people now what you know you, you know one of the things I think if people have had success there, there's always probably a mentor somewhere in their life whether it be their father at a young age in my case it was my father and then to be able to professionally to work next to a guy like Sandy. My, I don't think, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here today if I didn't have somebody like that, a mentor like that, that I could look to and, uh, and, and learn from. And so, but Sandy was, he, he really, I mean, he, he sat down the first day I came to the office, he threw a book on my desk and it was, uh, it was a negotiation book. And he just said, hey, listen, you played the game 10 years, now you gotta learn the other side of the business because it was critical for us at that point, as you mentioned, given that our payroll was going from the highest to basically the lowest, that it was critical that we understood the business part of the game and not just the baseball side, or at least I did. And uh, he emphasized to me, it's like, listen, you know, you're, you, you, this is what you need to learn because uh, to, run a, to run this club going forward, uh, you're going to need to know where every penny's going and it's, it's, it's going to be a much different uh, game than it was in the 80s for us. And so uh, that was the first day he literally 
did throw a book on my, my desk. And then uh, the other thing too is he was the one who exposed me to the Bill James uh, and some of the uh, you know objective decision makers that uh, were writing about baseball at the time. That hey, there's a you know statistical, mathematical, quantitative way to put together a baseball team, and uh, uh, it made sense to me. And uh, and again, being around Sandy on a daily basis and somebody who you know, eventually we, we thought very much alike. Uh, there, we did, I, there were two things, one things we did disagree on later on, but it was more, uh, it was, but by and large we had the main, uh, basic philosophy was the same. So when you're named GM after the 97th season, those are pretty big shoes to fill. Did yeah. you feel you were ready to sit in that chair? Uh, yes, but I also felt a sense of comfort knowing that Sandy was there as the president, you know? Um, it was very. It was comforting knowing that you, you know, he gave me a lot of autonomy uh, with the GM role. But uh, but it was nice in your first year knowing you had that mentor still around. What was really, I wouldn't say scary, was it was exciting and uh, and and a little. I was a little concerned because, uh, was when he did leave. You know, it was kind of like that Tom Cruise movie when the you know was a risky business. It was like you know, and. Uh, uh, and it was also, you know, it, it was also time for us to grow because, you know, Sandy was gone and he'd sort of been there for a lot of us who are actually still here today or people who went on to run their own teams, guys like J.P. Ricciardi. And, uh, you know, we are now, we're kind of the, you know, we, we now had the keys to the car. And uh, I brought in Paul DePodesta and, uh, and, you know, it was also an exciting time of growth as well. It's funny that you mentioned J.P. And yeah. Paul, in 1999, you told our friend Howard Bryant, quote, what I want is to be the baseball equivalent of Bill Walsh, where you have a tree of guys who work for you the same way I worked for Sandy, running teams all over the league. So that, to me, is pretty cool. When you saw JP go to take Toronto uh, and Paul go run the Dodgers and then Farhan go run the yeah. Dodgers, uh, how rewarding was it for you to see guys who, who were coming up under you to then go on and, and do exactly what you had talked about? Yeah, the thing that I, I think I'm most proud of and most excited about is when guys who have worked with me or worked next to me go on to uh, uh, run their own baseball teams. Uh, and in Paul's case, he's also part of a football team now too. So that's the one, uh, again, I make no bones about it. If, if I have, if there's one thing I have an ego about is that, that's what I'm proud of. And I, and I'm, and I farhand, you know, God, what a great story, grad student, uh, basically a PhD candidate, excuse me, which, um, and to see what he's doing now, you know, what Paul's done, what JP's done, even Grady Fuson, you know, going on and, uh, to have guys work under myself and uh, and then go on to you know bigger and better things that 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 is something I'm very very proud of. I mean even David Forrest, who I've been lucky enough, who's the one guy who stayed here I, and has uh, been 20 years now, and uh, he's a guy that's turned down many of opportunities to uh, to run his own club. And so again, that's the thing I'm very very proud of. You mentioned Paul going to football. Yeah. Did you ever did you ever think at any point about taking your talents to another sport and giving that a try? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I still do. <laughs> so, uh, Let's break some news here. Yeah, Come on, Billy. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, I, you know, one of the things I've been very lucky, and it's a credit to the you know, people I've worked for, is that um, they've given me the opportunity to do a lot of things uh, beyond just doing this job. Hey, the people around me allow me to do that as well because I've got such a competent staff uh, that works with me, uh, but also the ownership has given me the opportunity, you know, uh, in fact, you know, it's, it was part of my contract negotiations and, you know, being part of board of directors, uh, you know, I've been involved in other sports, uh, partial ownership and in boards, 
and some European soccer slash football teams. And so, uh, yeah, I've always been a little bit intellectually restless, and that sort of satisfies it. Five years after you became the GM, the Red Sox famously pursued you for their GM job, which you accepted before deciding to stay in Oakland. Was there ever a time after that thing settled itself where you thought to yourself, I should have gone to Boston? No, and, and, and I say that, and then one probably would say, no, you're not telling the truth. There, there was never a minute that once I made the decision to not go, and it was about a 24-hour period. It was a very, and like Stanford, you know, was probably the second toughest de- decision I'd ever had to make professionally in my life. But once I, like I remember calling John Henry the next morning because I was up all night, and I, the guy that I confided in that whole time was J.P., who was still to this day one of my closest friends, and he was my right-hand guy at the time, and him and Paul. And uh, and I just knew it wasn't right. And uh, I'm tough call talking to John Henry, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for. It was really one of the attractions was going to work for John Henry. Uh, but to call him the next morning and just say, listen, I can't take this job, uh, was very difficult to do. But I knew when, as soon as I said it that I was doing the right thing because I felt better. But I always say this too, and I, you know, you know, even again, the other thing too is a lot of it was personal. I mean, I, I was 40 years old. My parents were 60. Uh, my daughter was 12 at the time. I wasn't planning on going and failing. Uh, I figured if I went to Boston, I was going to be there for 20 years. Uh, I didn't want to come back to California. My parents were 80, and my daughter was 30. It was very much a personal decision. That, and again, when I had signed out of high school to Stanford. Um, you know, I, I'd made a, f- a little bit of a financial decision, and I'd compromised as to what I really wanted to do, which was go to Stanford, then play professional baseball. And I said I'd never do that again. And I realized that Boston's an amazing franchise, one of the greatest you know franchises in sports in the world. But it wasn't my dream to run the Red Sox, you know. Uh, and so I realized I was been making I was would have been making the decision for the wrong reason. I didn't want to be in a time zone three hours away from my entire life, personal life. And as I always said, uh, yeah, it was as it turned out they got the right guy. They got Theo Epstein, who brought him two world championships. Uh, he hired Ben Sherrington, who brought him a world championship, and they've won another since then. So uh, again, the right guy ran that club. Uh, somebody who was a Brookline native who had a, a, an intense love for the franchise, and, and things worked out well. And so that's the way I look at it. Again, to, to answer your original question is, I, I, d- I never for one minute ever looked back. Uh, and things turned out great for me. I, I honestly, I, it, I, I would not change a thing from that point forward. Late 90s, early 2000s, you brought up a bunch of really good players in the A system. And then one by one, you watched each of them depart to go elsewhere. You traded some of them, mm-hmm. some left as free agents, Jason Giambi, Miguel Tejada. Johnny Damon, Tim Hudson, Mark Mulder. Uh, how frustrating was it for you to have that core of a, of a team together and then have to uh, watch them leave one by one? Yeah, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you a moment. I remember sitting there. 2000, first of all, listen, the, and we've had some really good teams, I think, since I've been here. The 2001 team was the best team I think I've ever had. I mean, it was unbelievable. And, in fact, we got beat in game five. And I remember sitting there waiting for the uh, luggage uh, in fact, with game five was in New York that year. I remember we get back really late in Oakland, and me and Paul were sitting there watching the luggage come off the charter at four in the morning or whenever we landed. And we're just kind of mumbling to each other, knowing that, you know, this, this team's not going to be together, that we're going to lose most of these guys at the end of the season. As it turned out, we did. You know, Johnny Damon was gone, Isringhausen was gone, John was gone, and they, they were all at the door. And knowing that it, what a shame would have been, because it, 
I thought it was the best team in baseball that year, 2001. I really, it was a, just an amazing team. And I remember the following year, I think they, it was one of the uh, ESPN was doing one of the games uh, or somebody, one of the games were televised, and, and they calculated the payroll that we would have needed to keep that team together, and it was like over $300 million. <laughs> And I understand, this was like 2002. Right. Uh, and, 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 you know, that, that, that's a lot of money now. But imagine what it was like. So that, that's just it tells you what the market thought of that team. Uh, and we still had Tejada still. We still had Zito. We still had Mulder. We still had Hudson. But just with the guys going out, if we had kept that team together. So there, that was a pretty special time here. You know, when you think about, I mean, I, I, listen, I was smart enough to realize, you know, after my first year, we didn't, you know, my first year, we didn't have a particularly great year as a gym. But I remember sitting there thinking it was a 2000 when I had Hudson, Mulder, Zito. And I'm going, you know, some gyms might not have one guy like that their whole career. I got three at the same time. And uh, and to go out and listen, any gym will tell you, you know, the starting pitching will sort of determines your mood that day. And when you get to throw those guys out there, and understand during that time period too, we followed them up with some pretty good four and five guys: Ted Lilly, Corey Lytle, you know, who were very, very good pitchers for us. And uh, it was a pretty special group. And then with Jambi, you know, the first base, Tahada. I mean, it, Ramon Hernandez, a very good player. Eric Chavez. It was an incredible, incredible group of guys. But it was also the time that the game was changing. And, uh, you know, we weren't able to keep those guys together. But if you look at a lot of those guys, how much longer they played after that. I mean, the Tejadas, the Jambis, the Hudsons, I mean, the Damons. Uh, it was, uh, I mean, it shows you how great a team they were. We had them in their prime, too, at least for a year or two. People forget how well Zito pitched in that game three against the oh. Yankees. The fl- I mean, the flip play, obviously, is the thing everybody talks about. That was, that was a great game. Yeah, Musina. It was Musina yeah. and Barry. That was his you know, first they, year in New York. Yeah, and uh, you know what, people actually, you know, you watch that play and it, you still go, I don't know if out or save, out or save. But <laughs> depends I never, what side you were yeah. on. Eric Chavez, when he went came to the Yankees, still insisted to that moment he was out. So is that, yeah, <laughs> I, I still I think the thing that people assume is that had he been called safe, that we we're going to win. Now, the one thing people forget that series, and this is the details that people forget, is that number one, I think that was like the seventh inning or something. And uh, they still had Rivera, who had not pitched that series. So he could have gotten multiple innings. So the idea that, uh, you know, hey, we scored that run, we won the series, is probably, uh, it's, it's not the fact. We would have had a, still an uphill, with a 1-1 game, and understand there was two outs, with a 1-1 game, uh, we still had the back end with Rivera with at least two innings. On, and so it, it still would have been a very difficult game to win. But that was a great team. And, you know, listen, the team we lost to, I mean, that was, you know, I don't want to say the back end, but the 98 Yankees, since I've been involved in professional baseball, are the best team I've ever seen. And that was still that group of guys. And so, you know, a, a very good A's team lost to his, a historic team during that time period. 2 you have the big winning streak. Um, the following year, Moneyball comes out. I would imagine that dramatically changed your life when that book came out. What was your initial reaction when the book came out? <laughs> well, I was mad at Michael Lewis. Mainly because I was cursing like a sailor. This sounds crazy, but that was my first words to him. That I was mad that, you know, because I, I told you I came up with a military family. I really said this. I said, my, my parents are going to kill me. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, you know, it was a little overwhelmed because, you know, there's always this assumption that we sort of uh, incorporated Michael, each other, to write this book. We had no idea Michael was going to write the book. And he'll tell you, if you ever hear him talk about it, that uh, 
it was very sneaky the way he embedded himself. I mean, first it was a newspaper article, then it was going to be a New York Times magazine piece. He kept drawing it out. But what really, what we were guilty of is being intoxicated by a really smart guy, My, Paul and I. I mean, we liked hanging out with Michael. And, I mean, listen, I, we, it, we, were, we were right because since then he's probably arguably the most, one of the most influential nonfiction writers in the world today. And, and at the time, we, he understood what we were doing. You know, uh, in fact, the first, it was down here in Phoenix, and the first, I think the first two minutes we sat down with him, he said, I know exactly what you guys are doing here in Oakland. And we kind of, like, who's this guy, right? And he goes, uh, because you're arbitraging and mispricing of baseball players. And we kind of like, whoa. <laughs> so, and because uh, in some sense, in a very crude way, you know, Paul and I were really, we were following what was going on in Wall Street. You know, we were fascinated by, you know, Warren Buffett, obviously, and then, and then what was going on with the quantitative hedge funds. And we had, you know, access to this Bill James information. We had access to, at that time, we had some proprietary analytics we were using. And, um, and so to be around a guy like Michael was really intoxicating, you know, because he understood what we were doing. And he was kind of validating what we were doing. And, and nobody really understood what we were doing. It was, we were sort of, you know, a one-off, you know, all this, you know, numbers, this on base percentage stuff. But ironically, what was written in the book wasn't the complete story. I mean, it was a lot of it, but what there was other stuff we were using that we were, you know, Michael wasn't privy to uh, that is more common today. And, uh, uh, but Michael uh, was very smart in the way he sort of slowly, we gained our confidence. And then, you know, it, and honestly, it wasn't probably till the middle of the summer after the draft. He goes, you know, I'm, I'm going to write a book. And me and Paul were scared out of our minds because we literally had no idea what he was going to write. He, and he went that whole, whole offseason. And trust me, he didn't call us. We had no editorial control. Uh, and, uh, and the first time we saw the book was almost a year after we met him. He sent, it was down here at spring training. He sends me and Paul a copy of the galley. He said, hey, I'll let you guys read this. You know, you just you know, let you read it before it comes out. But he said, understand, you, know, you're not, you can't change a word in the book. So we both were just scared out of our minds. And, and honestly, we, again, we sort of both viewed it differently. And, and uh, I, you know, it was, again, I, I, for me, I said, my parents are going to kill me. I'm cursing all through this book. And, uh, you know, Paul had a different viewpoint of it. But the one thing when it came out, the one thing I knew when I read it was I wasn't misquoted. <laughs> you know, and, you know, as you know, right, there was a lot of noise around it. And the one thing I wasn't going to do is say, listen, hey, I was misquoted in an effort to sort of, you know, you know, it would have been the easy way out, which, right. but it wouldn't have been the truth. You know, and I always, you know, at the time, it's, it's easier now to say, hey, I wasn't misquoted. You know, we're 15 years later and it's gone on to, to Michael's credits of, you know, one of the best selling baseball. I think it still is the best selling baseball book, and, you know, and uh, but at the time saying you weren't misquoted was a little gutsier than it is now right you know but i was determined to say listen i wasn't and uh and and i you know to be honest with you, i believe what was in there i believed ultimately what we we're doing was going to be uh the way things were done and so i i didn't sort of i figured i was playing the long game <laughs> did you did you face any resentment from any of your peers in the years immediately after the book was was released you know it was uh, certainly not face to face you know <laughs> Uh, so I, and I wasn't overly worried about that, to be honest with you. I, again, I, I, in some sense, what I think some of the concerns about the book, I knew were gonna, was basically going to be BS. I mean, this, in fact, quite frankly, you know, for every person that might have been, you know, maybe upset or threatened by it, two people had opportunities. And I think that's sort of, or not, I mean, the game of baseball now is a meritocracy. You know, playing the game gives you no 
you don't necessarily because you played the game you get to run the team right because they're two different skill sets and uh, matter of fact it may almost hurt you at this point right there's not many there's not many players well, out there I mean, you listen yeah, I think you have to think of it differently I mean, there's certain you know play gives you a certain uh, different viewpoint that can be an advantage but it, but you know again you've got to combine it with other skills and um, and again I think the great thing that's a much more diverse game in terms of who's you know who's involved who's running it uh, there's more jobs ironically because it's the age of information and um, you know in fact I remember there was this you know a lot of you know the scouting staffs were going to be blown up guess what there's twice as many scouts on our staff you know why because there's information they can give us that we can't get from a uh, from a hard drive and again, driven by information. And uh, so, uh, you know, just like any industry, anytime there's something, there's there's a big change, there's a fear that, you know, there's, that there, you know, certainly, I mean, everyone worries about their job and that's natural, but usually an innovation will actually create a more efficient business and in terms, it will grow and create more opportunities. And I think that's what's happened, you know, so. When the book came out, you became a bit of a cult figure with Fortune 500 CEOs and a lot of people in the business world. Did that surprise you at all? It was flattering. I mean, some of the letters I, you know, you, that I, I got, and I, it was uh, it was humbling uh, that you know, again, you know, when Paul and I would both kind of pinch ourselves with some of the letters and the phone calls, and uh, you know, then you know, because it wasn't our, we weren't trying to be, we were just trying to survive. Right. You know, we were with a low payroll, that was simple. It was some for our goal, uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, certainly was, it was more than anything. It was just it was humbling. I remember my my. my my longtime assistant in Oakland, who's still with me, Betty, comes into my office and she said, "There's a there's a gentleman named Newt on the phone." And, I go, <laughs> and he goes, "His name is Newt Gingrich." <laughs> so, and I go, you know, this I think at this time, might have been, I don't know if he was he was past the Speaker of the House days, but you know, he's certainly a, a prominent you know figure in you know American politics still. And and you know, I got I remember. Um, just some of the correspondence I would get was really just it was uh, it was very very again very humbling, and uh, and you know that was just with the book because I mean the book I mean it was there was a Wall Street there was a business crowd there were you know business schools were using it. it was, when the movie came out it was a whole new that was a whole you know, a different thing I mean that sort of exposed it to everybody and not just people here in the states but all over the world as well that was you know the phone calls you got on that was even you know even broader and that was again humbling. Was it more flattering or frustrating for you to see so many other teams adopt a lot of the philosophies from the book? Well, we knew what was going to happen. Uh, so I, I, I guess flattering would, you know, uh, I, in, in some sense it forced us to continue to have to sort of innovate and, you know, try new things. Um, so I, we knew it was, I mean, listen, the game was becoming smarter. You know, there. You know, instead of just one Paul here in Oakland, Dee Podesta with me, then there. You know, you got you got guys like you know Theo coming in the game. Listen, the guy who doesn't get any credit is Brian Cashman. You know, I mean, I, the, the foolish thing I said with Brian was when he was looking to start an analytics department. If I had any recommendations for him, and ultimately I gave a recommendation, and the young man's his right hand guy there right now, Michael Fishman. So when you had really smart guys like Brian and Theo who who not only are bright, but they also have capital. That's a formidable opponent. Uh, and we still face that today. And so, uh, uh, but again, I think, I, I think it was the natural, it was, it was going to happen. Uh, and so I wasn't surprised. And I, I guess flattery is, is probably the word I would use. Were rival executives wary of dealing with you after the book, thinking like, well, if he likes this player, what am I missing about that player? Did you feel that any might of that? That happened in one or two instances, but though, though I think those 
people weren't weren't you know in the job very long after that. I mean, the, the you know, listen, there's there was a time when the you know there was a, a segment of GMs who viewed the world say like well, we did, and then there were some that viewed it differently. So you had a natural trade partner. And some of those GMs on this side were very good GMs, and so uh, they were self confident what they were doing, and you know, a lot of them were very successful. And uh, what happened over time though is that. You know, ultimately, analytics and objective decision making has been a part of almost every team in some respect. I mean, you, you can't—you're not going to call a GM, and, and they're going to have absolutely no idea how to evaluate their own players. It just doesn't happen now. I mean, every GM in this game today has got a pretty good idea of what they have and what you have, uh, which is why transactions, trades are, are, are more difficult uh, uh, now than they were before. Because we do view the a lot of us do view the game. Uh, it just depends the the. the the key to transaction now is where you are in terms of your team's development. Are you looking for younger players? Are you looking for established guys? But as far as you know, trying to like get a guy that the other side doesn't, is, is, you know, thinks is not very good. Actually, that doesn't happen anymore. All right, last Moneyball question. We have a lot more in our career to get yeah. to. Last year, you said that rereading the book quote is like watching an episode of The Flintstones. <laughs> How has the game and your approach to it changed the most? in the past 16 years? Well, you know, it's, it's true. The longer you do a job, you become more humble. And I've talked to Brian Cashman about this. If you think about it, if you do this job for 20 years, what ends up happening is people only remember all the mistakes you made, <laughs> you know? And if you've done it for 20 years, you probably made some decisions you might not do again. Sure. And so, uh, it, and it humbles you. But it also, it gives you a sense uh, you, you know, you know, you're not infallible, but it, but I think there's a certain peace that comes with that, and it makes it easier to make decisions, realize, and it also puts the people around you at ease. There's never been an environment here in Oakland, at least we've not tried not to create, where you better be right in your decision. In fact, all of us have been together so long that we joke about all the mistakes we've made. You know, whether it be me trading Josh Donaldson, uh, or us not drafting Mike Trout. Uh, you know things like all these things. I mean, 20 years. There's a, I can I could put your Hall of Fame team together that we had a shot at, and uh, and it humbles you, and you and you realize that you know uh, you're not always going to be right. The other guy on the other side is not always dumb, uh, and 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 again over time there's a I, I, there's a uh, there's a sense of comfort in knowing you're not going to be right every time, and, and so you you take the pressure off of being right every time and. And I think it helps you make decisions. The other thing, too, is I've realized, I mean, I have driven to the park a lot of, I mean, 20 plus years with 162 games a year, that's a lot of drives into the stadium when you have a game. And and I know when the team's going really well that it, I start thinking in my head, well, at some point it's going to turn or it's not going to be good. And when things are really bad, it's going to turn the other way. I, it, it's sort of, you, you stay very balanced. And um, I mean, you care just as much about winning and losing, but I think you also have a little bit of perspective and understand again that we're, 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 we're not machines, we're, we're gonna make mistakes, and it's how you sort of respond to those mistakes is really how you, uh, how successful you are going forward. In 2005, you were given an extension, and part of that, you received a small ownership stake in the team. Not a very common thing for a front office executive to get. What did that mean to you? You know, I think uh, part of it was, uh, I think from a business standpoint, you wanted to be a part of the value creation a little bit. In fact, I was willing to give up salary to be a part of that uh, because I felt like, listen, I, if, if I made good decisions and my owner had 95% of the team and I had 5% of the team, that he would benefit from those. 
the 95% would benefit exponentially relative to my 5%, but my 5% would be would you know, also be a great benefit to me. And, uh, and again, it was sort of betting on myself. And um, uh, it was one of the smartest business decisions I ever made, I can assure you, because certainly it's been a time of growth in this game. And uh, I've been fortunate. It was, listen, it goes back a little bit to, you know, reading everything that Warren Buffett ever wrote about, you know, businesses, you know, some, you know, quite, and quite frankly, if I, you know, uh, own my own sports team, whether it be a foot, whatever team, football, baseball, soccer, I would want to make, I wouldn't want the guy who uh, was making those decisions to have some skin in the game and be a part of that growth as well. I would want my own employee to have ownership of my business, uh, mainly because I know if, if, if he owns part of it, he's going to make decisions for the long haul, and he's going to make decisions based over the next 20 years, 25 years, not over the next two or three years or during his contract. October 2015, you're promoted to Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations. David Force was promoted to GM. What's the dynamic between the two of you when it comes to decision-making? Well, well, first of all, David is, I hate to use this term, but it, it, it maybe tells you the personal fondness I have for him is that he's like, he's like a brother to me. And, uh, but he's a brother who's been an incredibly instrumental in, in my career. Uh, he's been my right hand. He's the one guy, he's the constant. You know, this is his 20th year with me. I think, the only, I think maybe the, 2000 was his first year, so he first, he missed the 98-99 season. But beyond that, literally every day, four to five times a day I've spoken to this man. And, uh, and so any decision that we've made, uh, whether it be good or bad, and I like to think that a lot of them has been good, uh, David's been a part of it. He's been my consigliere, my right-hand guy, and, 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 and to some extent, mine his too. I mean, because we, we have a very flat structure, even though the media guy may say, me on top, David here, and everyone else. Once we get into this office, it's very flat. We, we allow a lot of autonomy, and we don't, there's no hierarchy here. Uh, I interact with my analyst. David does the same thing. But having a guy like David for me, I mean, literally to know that when you say one thing, you only have to say it one time, and it's, it's going to get done uh, exponentially, too, far beyond what you ever asked for. And he's an incredibly talented executive, uh, one of the closest friends in life, uh, along with having a moral compass that uh, is as good as anybody you'll ever want to be next to. So just a very important part of my life, and, and, and not just professionally, but personally. You've had a reputation of getting aggressive in the summer if you see a chance to contend with your team. Last year alone, Familia, Sean Kelly, Fernando Rodney, Mike Fires. Uh, do you think a front office owes it to players, to fans, when there is that opportunity to go for it? Absolutely. And in fact, if you don't, when you have that opportunity, you're in the wrong job. That's why we get these jobs, to do those deals. And, you know, and, and there will never be a day that I don't get excited about making those deals in that time of year. Uh, and I remember that, you know, it's funny, we were talking about David, is that, and funny, when we did the familiar deal, I was actually up in the middle of nowhere in Canada fishing, right? And it was a little before the trade deadline, so I, I you know, Listen, I have been fishing on the deadline, but I would have. I just got, <laughs> uh, I've done a deal on a river, but uh, uh, I remember I was literally in this uh, in Vancouver Island, the middle of nowhere, and uh, we were. Once I left that morning to go, we were taking a plane up to go in the to fishing. I was gonna have no contact, so I. JP was on the other end of that, and with Matt's my old friend, right. and we completed the deal conceptually, but we hadn't done the medical. And I had to get out to go to this fishing, and, and this is where David, I said, David, we, we got the familiar deal done. I'm not going to be back in contact till like 8 o'clock tonight when we get back from this fishing trip. And uh, so I, we, 
but we had to do medical and, and I think at that time we were trying to get a hold of my owner too uh, to get the okay and which we felt fine about but so I, literally that whole day goes by so I go fishing the whole day and uh, as soon as I get the only place there was Wi-Fi in this entire place was right in my little room that I was staying in this lodge and as soon as I get into my room all these emails come flooding <laughs> through and, and I had no idea if this trail and it turned out it was complete uh, but that was, you know, those are stories. We all have stories. I mean, I, I, the trade deadline, I could tell you almost every trade deadline and, re- and tell you about that exact trade. Now that all 30 teams have kind of caught up to most extent on analytics, do you think sports science might be the next area where teams really look to get that next competitive advantage? Listen, I, well, listen, I think the foundation for any advantage going forward is going to be data-driven. Uh, I think there's two things. I think you have biomechanics, or bi- the biomedical field, is it, and I think ultimately that as it relates to injuries. I think health uh, is probably the one, is the black box that nobody's sort of broken into in sports. A lot of it is because it probably, the solutions are going to be data-driven, and let's face it, there's going to be privacy issues when it comes to health, so you, it's a little bit of a there's, a, there's a gap between the data and privacy. Uh, but I think that any sports team, not just a baseball team, the one that, and you're never going to solve the health issue, but if you can sort of reduce, say, a time a guy spends on the DL, if you can sort of predict injuries, I mean, just take in baseball, Tommy John, the, the probably billions of dollars that are lost by virtue of uh, players who have that injury. And I think, again, I think that we're all looking, we're, we're, we're all looking to, to be better at keeping players in the field because if you look at any sport, the, the team that's successful usually it's the healthiest team, and you'd be surprised at how the correlation between health and success. I mean, you take the New England Patriots; they've only not made the playoffs one year since uh, Brady and Belichick have been in. It was the year uh, Brady got hurt. And they still won eleven games. They still did. Yeah, <laughs> it was, it was only, and only in the Patriots could do could take Matt Castle, right. have him, you know perform unbelievably and then trade him for a, a, a truckload of, of draft choices. You know, perfect Patriot transaction, right? But again, you know, it goes back, it was health, you know, and if you, I think I saw a, a New York Times article years ago that that the the playoff teams in the NFL are the healthiest teams. And and, uh, and you would expect that in the NFL because it's such a physical sport, but the, the same is true in baseball. I know we've, we've had teams that I, I knew that if they'd stayed healthy were capable of winning, uh, but they didn't, and uh, therefore they didn't win. You've said rather than rebuilding, you like to reshuffle. Um, given that, and given the financial limitations in certain aspects, how much pride do you take? You've been to the playoffs nine times yeah. in your 21 years here. Yeah, we missed by one game in 04. I'm still, that one still hurts. <laughs> we had a one-game lead going with three games at home against the Angels, and we uh, we lost the division that year, and we lost by one. So that would have been, in, that would have been like I said, it still hurts as much. Anyway, I'm, I'm very proud of that. And listen, you know, one. Uh, you know, you talk about we've had. We, you know, we've had players we drafted, but I think the, the 12, 13, 14, and 12 is another year. We, going into that season, you talk about. I think one of the you know famous websites had us as the 30th ranked team in baseball. In fact, I think the quote was, "We could lose up to 110 games a year." We won the division in 2012, and then we won it two more years. Um, and so what, what I was most proud about that era, and even the one we have now, but that 12, 13, 14, that every one of those players except one, basically, especially the 12, were players we traded for. Those were all transactions. And we weren't waiting for the draft. In fact, the one guy I think who came, I think Sonny Gray was the one guy who came up in 12 that was the player we drafted. Every other player on that team was a, a player that we traded for. 
and you know, to me, that's like uh, uh, you know, that I mean, that's a credit to you know the evaluation process up and down. It wasn't just waiting five years for a bunch of high draft choices. Uh, so each team was built differently, and that team was a transaction-based team. You know, the, you know, the Hudson Mulder Zito, that was very much a, a drafted and an organizational uh, developed team. Uh, the most recent team we had this last year was a little bit of a combination of both. There's some small, I mean, what seemed like small transactions, and then merging them with some very, you know, smart drafts, Matt Olson, uh, Matt Chapman, Chad Pender, guys like that who were blended in with the Chris Davises and the Jed Lowry's and the Marcus Simeons who were trade. So this was a combination. But each playoff team we've had has been, it really hasn't been one that's uh, been an extended uh, group of players or extended length of time of one players. They've all been their own story, uh, which is us, I think, doing our job. Just a few left here. When Kyler Murray declared his intention to play football instead of baseball, you were quoted as saying, if I can get do-overs, can I maybe invest in Apple stock 30 years ago as my first <laughs> choice? I don't get do-overs. How tough is it to have that type of situation, especially for a club like yours that does rely on the draft to import yeah. you know, big-time talent? Well, listen. It's 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 still an uh, a, it's not a it's not a finished story. You know, I mean, I guess I guess I'll, the way I look at it is is that uh, uh, we hold Kyler Murray's draft rights as, from basically he can't play for any other baseball team except ours. Now, this is a pretty special athlete, as we've all come to realize, uh, and I don't think anybody going into the football season. Uh, I think we all knew he's a talented football player, but I don't think anybody, including the NFL, maybe even including the University of Oklahoma or Oklahoma University, uh, thought that he, you know, he was going to do what he did. That's a credit to the kid. Uh, but listen, we still we're sitting here now. It's a story that uh, that isn't finished. Uh, he may go on to a great NFL career if, for some reason, he does not and he plays baseball. Well, guess what? The team that gets to have him is us. So that's the. I guess we'll look at the glass half full at this point. You famously don't like watching your team play, uh, citing the desire not to get emotional. Yeah. <laughs> Do you ever go watch games later on? Do you have a postseason? Can you watch postseason games? Postseason, I will watch. Okay. Yes, I will watch postseason. At that point, there's it's 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 basically a one-off. Right. So I actually enjoy them. You know. Uh, uh, but the, the season's still hard for me to, to watch. And a lot of it is that, you know, I was kind of, uh, listen, I don't, you know, gyrating in your seat in, on May 15th and game number 33, some little micro event that's going to have no impact, unless it's an injury, it's going to have no impact on the end of the season. And I don't really want to make a decision based on a micro event. Why do I want to sit through three hours, 162 nights, and be a miserable person to be around for my family? <laughs> so it's a way of sort of governing my emotions. Uh, hopefully making better decisions once the results are in. And, uh, and I've sort of learned that, that I'm a much better decision-making when I'm not sort of subject to the event going on, that when it's over and I, and I can look at it, then I'll, I'll, I'll... You know, one of my rules now, when Bob first came in, and, and I learned this over time, you know, I was a young GM, listen, after the game, I was usually in there with the manager and then, you know, expressing my, you know, happiness or unhappiness at what happened on the field that night. And I realized it's not a necessarily a great thing to to do and so you know and it's been a long time but I my rule with the manager and even with Bob when he first came over I said listen I won't after the game night game I won't even we, we won't we talk the next day unless there's an injury we need to do something I said day games I'll you know I'll come in there we'll chat but I said as a rule if you're on the road if we're playing the Yankees I'm going to be in bed by the time the game's over to just so you know and I said, unless, again, we have a transaction, let's speak in the morning. Because 75% of what we would say after a game, either one of us, is probably not something we'd say in the morning. And I learned that, you know, because I realized that 
this is such every night, you know, manager doesn't need me wearing him out. Uh, we don't need to be going back and forth, and we're both going to make better decisions and have better evaluations when we have a clear head and the emotion of the game's over. Do you watch the highlights the next day? I mean, you missed some pretty good won. baseball last year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. If we no, if we listen when it when it's over, then I can go back. Right. You know? And so uh, just in the moment. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. And a part of it is just again, I, I think I'm a much better. I I can't turn off the intensity while it's going on, and that's a way of. of you know, keeping it in check. Farhan once said that the people who have worked for you want to see you win a World Series more than you want it for yourself. Uh, what would it mean for you in your career? Is it going to be a hole in your in your career if you don't get that championship? You know, when you when you when I answer this, what I truly believe, no one believes me. You know, I feel like I should. Okay, well, you know, I, yeah, I should have. I don't ever never really thought about that. I uh, and I mean that uh, again. The reason it would be important for me is for the people who work around me, for the city, and I honestly mean that. I don't, uh, I, you know, even the term legacy, when it comes to something professionally, is not something I embrace. I always said, my legacy is my kids. After that, you know, this has been a great way to make a living, and I've been able to, you know, do things that I, I mean, to have my hobby pay me at the level they pay me is just an incredible uh, opportunity that most people in this world don't have. So, but the idea that, you know that you know uh, my professional career would be, need to be validated. You know whether or the world's I've never viewed it that way. I mean, but again, I, I, whenever I say that, I'm going. I'm so it's, oh yeah, sure, sure. But that's 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 my answer. I'm sticking to it. Last one. A couple years ago, you said, as long as I find the job exciting and rewarding, I'll want to do it. How long can you see yourself? How long do you want to do this job? Yeah, you, I, I'm at least at the point now where I, ha- I ask myself that question. I with what I I still love the job. I mean, I'm, I'm blessed to. To get to do this job, to be in, to be in, you know, come to Arizona for spring training and, and, and work and live in California my whole life, which I love. But I think what keeps me going now is the people I work with. Uh, I love, you know, I, you know, the idea that I would come to the office or not come to the office and get to see David every day, get to see Dan Feinstein, get to see Bob Melvin, get to see Steve Gusinich, a long longtime clubhouse guys. That's what I still love about the game, and I'm blessed that uh, you know I've been around these people in some cases for 30 plus years, and to get to work in this business to get to chew. You know, at the point now, that was the best advice Sandy Alderson gave me. He said, you know, early in my career I had that opportunity to leave and go somewhere else, and and Sandy said, well, you're not ready. You know, I was very young, and and uh, he said, you're not ready. When you become a general manager, you want ultimately to do the job as long as you want the job. Not to just get the job and be done in three years. And that's happened to people over the years. And I'd like to think that in taking his advice, I at least reached the point in my life that you can ask the question, how long do you want it to do it? And I think that in some sense, uh, it's satisfying to know that at least you've reached a level of success that you, I can actually answer that question. And to answer your question, I'm not sure, but I still love doing it now. Billy, thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Mark. Many thanks to Billy Bean for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. Coming up in future episodes this season, I'll sit down with Giants Senior Advisor J.P. Ricciardi, Red Sox Assistant General Manager Zach Scott, and many more executives around the league. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein.